1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 337th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Emilio Torres and Scott Burkhart. Interesting fact, they were both patrons before. They were both on our patron list, but somehow they became patrons this past week, which means that people have cracked the code. If you want to get your name mentioned again, You just stop being a patron and then you restart being a patron, oftentimes at a lower patron level. And uh, then you get your name mentioned again. So, I don't know, Matt. What do you think about that?
2: Listen, I think it's an okay move. And also, who knows, maybe their credit card number changed and they wanted to re-sign
1: up or something. I don't know, man. Guys, we love you. Scott Burkhardt, Emilio Torres. Emilio, we owe you an email. I'm Oren Kaplan. <laughs> I'm Matt Low Today, we've got Rick Castaneda on the show,
2: an old pal of mine who's got a new movie coming out called All Sorts. It's available to stream October 5th on all the places that you stream movies. If you live in New Orleans, it might be at a theater near you. Or if you live in the greater Washington area, perhaps it's available for you to screen there. The film, again, is called All Sorts. You can go to allsortsmovie.com if you're curious about where it's playing theatrically. But also, you can definitely check out all the cool stuff over there and uh, pre-order order it and all that stuff
1: and in case you're wondering yes it is about sorting it's a movie about competitive filing and filing cabinets and it's crazy and funny and you should check it out charming and funny and like i guess magical realism is perhaps the genre
2: that it operates in it's got tons of cool visual gags that we talk about a little bit it's a real treat to talk to rick i've known him for years when i pitched him to Oren, i was like oh he's kind of like thoughtful and introspective i would put him in the the Tim Nakashi category of filmmaker, where he's got a lot of insights. This is his second film. He runs his own companies, had
1: two companies. I feel like there were a handful of like bullet pointed nuggets. Yeah. And some great metaphors of how to think about filmmaking, which I really appreciated. Matt, before we talk to Rick, tell me. What have you been working on lately?
2: Well, I have a funny little anecdote for you here, Oren. I got some casting tapes for a new spot that I'm shooting later this month. And one of the characters is a director. It's one of those things where the director is really kind of there to like, for
1: functional purposes. Matt, you know. uh, I kind of like what you're saying, but let's just like make it a little mm-hmm, bit a little skinnier. Tighter. Sh- yeah, sh- tighter, sharper, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. action. A smile a little smile at the end. No, no. Uh, uh, when I say action, you go. And action. Uh, you now? The
2: lines are relatively minimal, but there's a lot of room for improv. There's a lot of other characters talking as they're performing and all of that stuff. So anyway, I get, you know, an email from my casting director today and I get like just a laundry list of great actors, all of whom are basically improvising what they have witnessed directors do to them their entire careers. And it was such a treat. It was so funny. And also, you know, made me a little introspective. You know, you see a lot of people Like listening and then taking notes and then like talking to someone or like silently whispering about a performance. All those little things that we do that we're kind of maybe hoping actors aren't clocking. They're seeing it all. And I saw all of the evidence today in my my casting call.
1: Yeah. Hey, hot tip for you brand new directors. I imagine anyone that's directed anything already knows this, but don't whisper to someone after each take because your actors think that they're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Hurts their feelings. Even if it's like, that
3: was great.
1: Yeah. Talk to the actor first. That was great. Hold on. We're just going to check something with the camera and then talk about their performance, whatever. So did you cast someone? I have a strong recco. I'm having that meeting tomorrow to lock in casting. Oh, cool. Any um, really funny things someone said? My favorites were the ones who
2: were not verbalizing a ton of their improv that were just doing the mannerisms i thought that was really the most pointed and also this like i said this character is relatively functional so like uh knowing that i could have somebody doing something sort of funny that's not pulling focus like in the deep background or just kind of like being a well observed textural element was really exciting to me. There were a lot of people who I think are really awesome improvisers, but kind of need to be in the spotlight. And like that won't work quite as well. Basically, you know, it's the yeah. spot's not about them basically, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was a uh, reinvigorating. This is a long time in and I've been working on this spot for a long time. So I'm excited to bring it to life. Um, yeah. But Oren, enough yes. about my casting. I've been dying to know,
1: what you have been working on lately? Well, I will kind of answer you in a negative way because I had kind of like a real bummer of a day today. You know, I know on the podcast, we, we try to keep things positive. We want to be encouraging. We want everyone to know that you can have a career as a filmmaker and a director and hopefully from our guests and from us, you've realized that it's possible. But I, I do think that people appreciate the, the downturns as well as the upturns. And, you know, I, I joined this new production company kind of recently and we did a spot together and it was really fun. We shot in Nashville and talked about it a bunch. And I haven't really pitched on another job with them since then. And that was a couple months ago. And finally, we got a job, It's kind of a small job, like much lower budget than they usually do. But it was for a cool brand and the creative was fun. I shot in LA, like all kind of the easy things. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's, let's pitch on it. And so we scheduled a call with the agency today and You know, if you don't work in commercials, like you, you do this call with the agency before you write your treatment to kind of have them walk you through the creative, the EP at the production company. You know, he's the guy that's like on my team that's helping me with everything. We had a little talk before and he, he he's kind of coached me a little bit about these calls. Like, don't give too many ideas. Don't talk too much. Let them explain the thing. Be exciting. And there's something a little bit nerve wracking about not only having to have great ideas and talk about these commercials in a positive, fun way and impress the agency with how cool you are and your confidence. But you also are having to impress your new team, you know? And a lot of times they're kind of texting you while you're talking, you know? They're like, hey, talk about this. Hey, bring this up, bring this up. And a lot of times that stuff just really throws me off. Mm, getting a text mid-flow is, is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, so he gave me, a sent me this text that said, Take us through the characters one by one. And I was unclear if he meant that I should take the agency through the characters one by one or if I should ask the agency to take me through the characters one by one. Yeah. What did you say? I was like, hey, so let's talk about the couple. You know, how do you Mm -hmm. guys picture them? Because like I, you know, I Mm -hmm. I love like how different they are from each other. And I I think we can really build on that. And they're like, yeah, we were kind of thinking like the animatic, you know, whatever. They had some things to say. And I I brought up like an idea and I thought was cool that it was kind of had a lukewarm reception, but we talked a lot about the treatment and kind of the things that they were unsure about in the commercial, like how there's like a little kind of magical moment and how they wanted to figure out how I would do that. And they were really concerned about like the spokesperson of this brand being memorable and cool. I had like my marching orders for this Mm -hmm. treatment and I thought the call went okay considering all those things. Um, and then you know, I've started gathering some images and started, you know, kind of thinking about how to write it. And then I got a call from the EP and he said, Hey, don't write. They're gonna go oh, no. another direction. That sucks. Yeah. Before, you know, I even like started working on the treatment. Yeah. And again, this was like a job. It was kind of like a smaller job. And yeah. a lot of times you go for the smaller jobs because they in theory are easier to get, you know. And I was just like really bummed it was like i guess i guess they didn't like me from that call you know mm-hmm. and i've been in situations where they've said hey we're going to do some calls with some directors and then we're going to figure out mm-hmm. what narrow it down the treatment yeah. yeah and i've i've always written the treatment based on that but i don't know if there was like nerves there's like me trying to mm-hmm. figure out how to make everyone happy not to give too many ideas not to give enough ideas the guy that's on my team the ep at my company seems to think that I was like asking more questions as opposed to like having a conversation. But yeah, it it was weird. It's, you know, film directing is, is weird because sometimes you're on like a long string of jobs like you mm-hmm. are and sometimes. And I, I feel like I usually am. And sometimes you're on a little string of almost jobs and it's, uh, you know, it's tough to keep going. So I was like, told my wife and she's sympathetic. She's an actor. She, I mean, that's her, her life. Yeah. You know, she, this last, you know, a couple of weeks, she's had like a few callbacks and some really amazing auditions. And we've, we've like worked really hard. I mean, she literally buys new wardrobe like for every audition. Mm-hmm. She just like puts everything into it. And, you know, you get a callback and then you don't hear anything ever again. And it's yeah. this life that we've chosen. is just like really, it can be really hard. So I just went for a walk, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was like, hey, I'm just going to go for a walk. It's only 98 degrees at this point, down five degrees colder mm-hmm. than I'm curious, do you ever like when you lose out on something, when you're really bummed, like what do you do anything that kind of like gets your mind off of it? Because Um, I like to cook. Cooking is really nice because it's artistic and
2: but you have to focus. You don't want to chop your finger off or whatever. And you're also like providing for your family. So it's kind of like a nice little win of like, oh, somebody like people get to eat something delicious. I'm helping people out, but I also get to kind of like zone out. So I'll do that. I have lamented in recent weeks not having a good way to blow off steam. Like as the baby's old enough now that I'm kind of clawing back a little bit of time, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not quite so exhausted. We're into some routines, you know, it's not quite the sort of struggle that it was when she was first born. And so it's like, I don't know what to do with myself.
1: No, it, it's tricky for me too. It's like, I was, was really bummed and I have a lot of work to, I'm working on this movie, I'm doing the effects and I, you know, I have this long to-do list of things I want to put on Instagram and things, my own project, but just like none of those would make me, ha- you know, I just not better. in the headspace. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
2: There, there is that mental health aspect of it. Like you'd mentioned that I was on a, I'm on a hot streak, so to speak. I'm working a lot. I was like, dang, I could actually legitimately use a mental health day. Just like a day to actually
1: decompress or like think or clear my head. Well, out of the blue, right after that, after my walk, I got a text from a friend of mine. I was like, hey, do you want to go go go-kart racing tomorrow? Oh my God. Are you gonna? Yeah. He's really into F1. And I was like, you mean like with the kids? He's like, no, these are like serious go-karts that go really fast. I'm not into F1, but I am into doing something with a friend that's like not just like having lunch so speaking of friends let's talk to your old pal rick castaneda millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
2: salads generally for most people are the easy button right
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. Hey, we're here with Rick Castaneda. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello, Rick. I'm excited to be
3: here. Thank you.
1: Longtime friend of Matt's from... USC. You mentioned that you were not a film major. Did you have a major?
3: Yeah, I was uh, in the English degree. I had a creative writing major.
1: Oh, that's related.
3: Yeah. I studied with T.C. Boyle, the um, American novelist. Oh, wow! Yeah. Yeah. He was really great. He really believed in his students, too. That was one of the best parts is that he, you know, I went... And uh, talk to him during office hours. You know, he would begin class saying, "Like, hey, look at this. You know, story in the New Yorker. It's by Bob. Blah 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 blah." And you know, four years ago, he was sitting right here in this class, and you could be in the New Yorker in a few years. And you know, like he just really believed in us. And he has this thing called the archives, so he actually keeps a copy of every single one of his students' stories in this archive and he would tell us that he was like oh yeah these are going in the archive we didn't really have any idea what he was talking about but later on i found out that i think he sold all of his like academic papers and his like Mm -hmm. writings and his whole like you know body of writing and notes and things to i think it was like the university of texas or something and i once got a google alert because my name was part of that as part of the archive's That's
2: wild, man. That's like, um, I guess it pays to be a hoarder after all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It felt important. You know, it felt like someone cares about my writing, even if no one else does, you know, like, so that kind of, and those kind of things stick with you. Hopefully you keep like a a file folder in your brain for all of those like wonderful memories about your creative things. Um, I know some people who they really focus on all the negative things and like they keep all like most of the space in their brain is dedicated to all these bad memories that they can't get rid of. But I really have like a file folder just full of good things and good memories so that I can, we you know when I lose hope, I can kind of go back to that.
1: So Rick, I want to get into your film, All Sorts, which premiered at the Seattle Film Festival. Congrats on that. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Thanks. I love the title. I love, you know, double entendres. This is your second feature, right? You yeah. Made? Yeah. And how, just real, just a, the one paragraph explanation of how you went from creative writing major to filmmaker.
3: Uh, so I went to USC. One of my friends was Doug Spice, who is also, you know, uh, he worked on the same film as Matt and, and in college. And so I ended up starting a production company with Doug and a few other guys from school right after we graduated. And we were able to get like a project. And then we got a big enough project to have to like get an office together. And then we just kept getting on more projects. So we started a company called Psychic Bunny. And I probably worked for that company for about 15 years um, as, you know, Doug and I and Asa and Jesse, we were all the founders of that company. I never really wanted to own a company. That was never the point. I wanted to tell stories and uh, I love filmmaking. I think it's a very exciting way to tell stories where you're not just sitting in your room by yourself all alone all the time. So I find it's like a good Balance to writing is like becoming this huge collaborative effort. You know, a big group of people, and so I always kept that in mind that I wanted to be making these films. So that's kind of how the production company works: is that we we like, you know, work for other people, save money, and then we would go out and make our own projects. And so now I have a new production company called Vibrant Penguin, but we're really trying to turn that corner from being a work for hire company to being more of an entertainment company.
1: Now, is it true that you used the Mad Libs book to come up with the names of your production companies?
3: (laughs) Uh, The first one was based on a segment that we were writing for a technology company Mm -hmm. where we thought it would be really fun if everybody interviewed for that show was interviewed by this rabbit sitting next to a speaker that would just like telepathically ask questions to the person. And so we thought, (laughs) okay, that'll be a great that's a great, you know, and everybody, I remember somebody was like, oh, that should be the name of our company. And everybody just kind of went, hmm, yeah, that would be a good name for a company. And we ended up <laughs> spitballing like... You weren't even going to start
1: a company, but you had the name. That's <laughs> well, usually the hardest part.
3: Well, we were, we were going to start a company because, um, you know, someone hired us and they didn't want to pay us as individuals. They wanted to only pay the company. And we were like, okay, sure. Because we were like college students at the time, we thought, okay, sure, we'll try this. And so we were looking for a name, and we ended up spitballing like a hundred names out of that. But we ended up still sticking with S- Psychic Bunny. And with the penguin, I kind of, I, I had come up with a bunch of different names, but I realized that was the one that was like I knew the most about. I could figure out how it would look, and
1: that was pretty much it. Vibrant Penguin. You're talking about?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I wanted it to be like a Like a black and white animal that was like very colorful, that kind of like was more creative than it was started out as.
2: I want to talk more about uh, the filmmaking side of this, but I am curious, Rick, because I remember when Psychic Bunny was just getting going and like it always felt like a company that sort of happened by accident and that you guys kind of kept kept going through inertia, right? Yeah. Um, and like, you know, you got those office building, or the offices in that cool, like building downtown and it was fun and cool, but you guys were working super, super hard. I'm curious because you said that you, you know, you were a creative writer who then kind of pivoted into filmmaking. And like we said, like we weren't planning on, a, or you never wanted to own your own company. And then that company went away and then you did it again. So I am curious as to why you decided to get back into the production company game.
3: The Sushi Dragon happened. That was what dragged me back. So I was actually thinking about moving away from L.A. It was like during the pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like going to move away from L.A. I was like, I don't want to do any production during all of this. Like that was that seemed very annoying. And uh, I was like, okay, maybe this is, you know, the time telling me to like, you know, pursue writing over like filmmaking necessarily. Mm-hmm. And um I got this opportunity from a friend of mine to uh interview for the sh- the job of a showrunner for this new network called Venn which is um no longer in operation but uh, at the time it was very exciting and I was like and he told me it was a um a show for a dance a um avant-garde dance show and I was like what does that even mean? And I was like looking it up. And finally I, I, I found the sushi, the sushi dragon on Twitch, which I, you know, Twitch was another thing that I was kind of scared of because it seemed like something new. Like,
2: and to clarify, then was a network on Twitch.
3: Ven was actually, right? a I don't or know. No. They called them a multi-channel network. Cause it was, <laughs> I mean, but not in an MCN, like the old days, it was just like, you know, they were, their shows were streaming live on, Twitch, Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook, cross-platform
2: live, cross-platform live live streaming sort of. Yeah,
3: experience. exactly. And they were yeah, also yeah. like on Samsung TVs and like a few other things. So, okay, well, that makes sense. Then you were like, okay, well, this is a cool job. It was awesome. That was one of the like times where you just, I just felt like, okay, this is exactly what I want to be doing. This is wonderful.
2: And uh, it turned out that the show is less uh, avant-garde dancing and more kind of like a glitchy.
1: It's like an interview variety show, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Interview, parody, variety show with a host who can virtual stream and changes backgrounds and controls all of like 20 different cameras with some um, joysticks that he holds in his hand.
1: Yeah. Cool. So like, that like, like called... a
2: cyberpunk talk show basically. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's called Sushi Dragon, the Sushi Dragon show starring Sushi Dragon. That's it.
3: Yeah. And that that became one of the best opportunities to just like, okay, we're gonna start this new thing. I'm gonna start a new company. We're gonna do this show. And it was amazing. And um, you know, I was able to hire a lot of people that, you know, I grew up working with. And, you know, I was able to hire Doug and make have him make a segment of the show. Mm -hmm. um it was just so much fun it was incredible because it's uh it allows so much creativity that show you could really literally do anything
2: you can do anything right so so that pulled you back in but i'm curious um starting again were there things that you wanted to do differently when you're when when one starts a production company in college i imagine there are a lot of mistakes that you make over the years right but so then to kind of have truly a clean slate on all of that. Was there anything in particular that you were
1: like, this time I'm going to make sure I... We're not going to spend 200 grand on Kino flows. Right, right. <laughs> right,
3: right. I think <laughs> we do have some Kino flows for sale if uh, you know anybody's <laughs> interested. Um, no. So I would say the, the hardest thing to learn when I started was the business side of things. That was like the most difficult, you know, you don't want to talk about money, reading contracts was a bore, it was really boring. And it was really difficult, you know, and, and I think over the years, I really kind of built all that all up. I think the thing that I'm trying to do differently when this production company is not play it safe. I think that I like, you know, over the course of those 15 years with Psychic Bunny, I was always kind of like playing it safe. You know, we had employees. I wanted to make sure that we took care of them. I wanted to make sure that our partners could make rent. I wanted to, all of the decisions were based around safety, I think of like, Mm -hmm. we want to make this a production company that keeps going. And I think with Vibrant Penguin, I'm just like, who cares? You know, like if this production company isn't around in a year, then that's okay. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there will be other things that I can do after that. So I, I'm trying to do my mentality now is like, just do it. Just like get it done. And I think I have like a sticker somewhere on my desk that says valiantly making decisions because I just want to be like, okay, I don't want to hem and on more. I just want to like go after it and mm-hmm. do it. And um, if there's like a question about like, well, but, you know, taking this music video might wreck the company or something, then I'm like. Okay, let's do it. Like, if it's a music video I want to do, then I'm okay with not having a company if, if this is what breaks it. But mm-hmm. so far, nothing's, you know, broken it. Yes, yeah, wild, man.
2: Well, and so I think this is a perfect segue into how you approach feature filmmaking, basically, right? Like, as a, as a person who owns a company, has to keep the lights on, you know, you have responsibilities. I think Orin and I talk about it on the show the way our lives have changed over the years. You have a young child now yeah. as well. You have, you're married, you know, it's not like it, you know, if, if your first company had gone away after a year or two, it literally wouldn't be a huge deal at all. You know, you just kind of like figure it out and be fine. But like now you have a standard of living and then all of that. And also you continue to on a regular basis, Work on and support and nurture your feature film career, which is kind of the main reason I wanted to talk to you. Right, it's like in a, in a very homegrown way, both of your films are shot up, shot you know in your hometown more or less. So, talk to us a little bit about just the, the philosophy of how you approach your first film Cement Suitcase, how you approached your second film, all sorts, and and what maybe that where your head's at in terms of the next big project
3: making a film, making a feature film, making an indie feature film, actually probably making a studio feature film as well is probably something that could break your life, right? Mm -hmm. It's just so big. It's so much. It's like, it's like a hurricane, right? It just comes in, sweeps up, sweeps up all your time. If it's an indie sweeping up all of your money and you know, the poor locations that you film in where you just like your whole, you know, filmmaking group swoops in and like, you know, moves all of the furniture around and everything. And hopefully you took pictures and you can move it all back in the right place. And you put down stuff on the floor so they don't get scratched, but it's, it's a hurricane. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that both with, with movie one and movie two, I was worried that it was going to completely break the company. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I started both of them during the psychic bunny years. And so, you know, when you're, in a partnership with other people, then it's like, you know, if if you're taking time off to do something creative and you're taking company resources to do something creative, there are a limited resources that mm-hmm. are not going to those other partners now, and so it was always very difficult to, you know, get that to happen. And with mm-hmm. um, the second movie as well, I would say that um, I thought the second movie was going to be easier because mm-hmm. I had done it before, and that did not turn out to be true. And I think one of the reasons is that you, every single time you make a movie, you're trying to do more than is possible, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have a budget of a million dollars, you're gonna try to get a movie that looks like a two or $3 million movie. If you have a budget that is $10,000, you're trying to make it look like $100,000. And so you're always trying to like, and if, if your first movie, you know, got, um, an a minus this time you're trying to go get an mm-hmm. A, right. Mm-hmm. And so I think no matter what you're trying to like push things to the limit. So what's really funny was that the first movie that I had cement suitcase, we filmed all over, um, you know, the Valley in Washington state where we filmed Yakima Valley. We filmed all the way from, you know, like probably over, you know, in, in 10 different towns and we were doing like, you know, maybe three locations, maybe four locations in a day. We're just like, because I was really trying to show off the area, you know, like that was my production value was this beautiful area where everybody would give Mm -hmm. us permission to film. And my second film, I was like, that was too many location changes. I don't, you know, I'm going to set it all in one office Mm -hmm. and and I'm going to film for more days so that I can really focus on the performances and really work with those actors and like really hone it down. But what I ended up doing was like, Increasing the cast, it was now like, a, you know, a, um, ensemble and, as opposed to focusing on one person. And then I also, like, ballooned out in, like, props and, like, gag mm-hmm. jokes and, like, visual, you know, visual effects. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, like, if you're filming in one office, it gets pretty boring pretty fast. You have to keep mixing it up, throwing in mm-hmm. new visual candy to, like, make it a different kind of thing. And, uh, so I ended up having to hire like four or five art people, whereas like the first film only had one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that became the huge challenge of the movie. It was like, how are we going to get all of this stuff that I've dreamed up and nobody's really figured out how to make yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's an and, example of a crazy thing you dreamed up?
3: Um, you know, like I had one character get sucked up into the ceiling, you know, um, which is, like, Fine on its own, but it's like, you know, I. We have to figure out a way. Okay, how is it going to get sucked under the ceiling? And I had an idea, like, okay, we build a false ceiling, and then people just lift them up through that, right? So then I talked to a friend, you know, that had helped with the first movie, and you know, he he goes, he has to go out and like buy all that stuff and like you know figure out, and he has to spend a day creating it, and then we were like, you know, shooting it like all night, trying to get it right and everything, and then you know, it still needs some visual effects on it. Cause you can still see like some things on the edge of frame. And it's like, you just work and work and work, work. And then, then in the movie, it's like, that's it. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like all of that planning and everything was sure. like less than a second of film.
1: Wait, and, because do you speed it up or how do you do it? Or would it not have, could you have dropped, dropped him through the ceiling and then played it in reverse?
3: Well, nobody can fit in a ceiling for one thing. Like, you know, nobody. There aren't actually like you know, the tiles in the b- building that we were you know in sure. it's like you know it's like a foot you know right. or something. Yeah, but it's a
2: crawl space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're yeah, not you uh, have like to you cast know small. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so so yeah, so all of that time and and like that's just one thing. So we had like a calendar we had to print. We had a sink that had to like. Um, spew coffee instead of water we had driving shots so those took some time we -hmm. had a a a paper clip that came to life we had a filing cabinet that had to eat people um (laughs) we had like a double decker um filing cabinet because we wanted special challenges for these you know filing competition scenes and um all of those took lots of people to make Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that stuff like the sink that you know that has coffee in it instead of water like it's so easy to write you know yeah. <laughs> and i feel like in jobs especially with matt and i you know i've been doing a lot of commercial stuff lately they'll just write like a unicorn walks in or you know a confetti cannon explodes or right a, someone paints the wall like in jackson pollock style or whatever and you're like Do you know how many people and how much like time it's going to take to figure out what this thing you wrote that actually doesn't really even Mm-hmm. Make much sense for the script, uh, and they're like, "Just do an orin."
3: Yeah, it. we were doing pre-pro for a com- uh, short film one time, and we're like, "How much would it cost to rent an ostrich to teach it to pull a cart?" <laughs> 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 and uh, turns out ostriches are like one of the less trainable animals,
2: and but, um, very mean. Yeah. Very, very,
3: very mean. Their eggs are yeah. delicious. <laughs> we, we couldn't get our ostriches. Very yeah. disappointing. I think there are two things that I really wanted to improve on, two two smaller things that I really wanted to improve on. One was I think my first movie had a bad title. Mm-hmm. It was called Cement Suitcase and it wasn't like a thriller mm-hmm. where somebody's chopped up and put into a suitcase. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what it sounds like.
2: It's kind uh, of like a like a lighthearted comedy in like yeah, yeah, yeah. wine country.
3: So yeah. I knew I wanted to have like a good title. With the first film I kept having to explain it over and over. And I was just like, man, this is just not like clicking. I think I read that Nora Ephron said like, if she couldn't come up with a good title for the movie idea that she had, she just scrapped it and like started. <laughs> else. Which I thought was incredible. I was like, oh my God. Like, you know, I think as filmmakers, we don't really think a lot about selling, you know, mm-hmm. like about the marketing aspects, even though, you know, like the pitch, that's all what the pitch is about. Right. Is like, can you sell it? Can you, can this be an idea that sticks quickly in somebody's mind? And that changed a lot of how I thought about films instead of being kind of like, a, well, I'm not going to worry about the titles and like all of that stuff, man. I just want to make cool, like an amazing yeah. piece of art. If and, you build uh, a they
1: will come sort of mentality. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I, well, I think that there's like this first filmmaker type of thing where it's like, yeah, yeah you don't get it because it's never been done you know, like (laughs) that you're here to break the mold and make you notice and do something unique and different. And yeah, people won't get it until they see it. And it's like, no, actually they will never see it because they don't get it. You know? It's yeah.
3: I mean, I I think of it even more as like aerodynamics, like you don't want to be waving a stick with like a weird fluffy thing at the end of it. You know I mean? Mm -hmm. You want to be waving a sword. You want it to like fly, like just cut through the air and just do exactly what you want it to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's kind of what I wanted to try to like get to. And I think the other thing is that like with the first movie, uh, I felt like I was trying to like kind of have see it. So I was kind of making artsy film, but I was also, I really want to make a film that people from the area would enjoy. And mm-hmm. so I didn't make it, I didn't want to make it too weird because then I would be like, what the, What's this? You know, like that's mm-hmm. I'm a shopkeeper and that doesn't make any sense to me. So with this film, I was just like, this one's fully me. It's just like weird and strange and exactly the way I wanted to make
1: it. And that's your time at All Sorts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So, I, But
2: I mean, I think the marketability is, that's a real second film lesson. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think to or to your point of just like, well, I'm breaking the mold. There's a little bit of uh, arrogance to arrogance to kind of making any films right like there, there is a the sense of or confidence maybe of just like yeah like, i have something that hundreds thousands millions of people are gonna like love that's like a like a pretty bold statement right that we're all party to like we're all kind of like that's um that's our deal but then i think after you know a film doesn't do exactly what you're hoping you don't become a superstar from it and you're not you know just getting thrown you know studio deals left and right you're like well maybe I should think about the way other people think about my film or the way that I can explain it to other people or you know what I mean like and
3: and I don't think it's like you know not being the artist that you want to be you know it's not about that it's not about Like I'm sacrificing this to get to a better place or something to get, you know, I'm not going to add a whole bunch of guns to my movie because Mm -hmm. that's what people want. It's really about, you know, this thing was clunky on the first film. I don't want Mm -hmm. it to be clunky on the second film. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want to get better at that. I want to get better at making good titles. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times that I saw a movie because it had a really cool title. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe not trying to, to fight that feeling of like, just because you know not finding the feeling of like maybe I should find a find a good title for this maybe yeah. that is important you know because i think that's maybe the feeling that you're talking about is you know first time filmmaker might say like oh i don't i don't want to you know the, the the title doesn't matter that much or something
1: or like they'll once they see the movie they'll get it not realizing that the right. title is actually a marketing tool right. and and j- also realizing like i love your metaphor of the sword just realizing that You know, as a filmmaker, it's like a mixed medium, you know, art, right? It's like you're mixing Mm -hmm. writing and acting and lighting Mm -hmm. and editing and all these things. And part of what you're mixing is the title, you know, like like I actually just saw a movie the other day, a a filmmaker friend of ours sent and he was like, Hey, here's check this out. I would love to know what you think about it. And my biggest note to him, because there is like a, a very specific construct and he's broken the filmmaking form in this interesting way and i was like what if in your setup and in your marketing material you're like hey a movie like something you've never seen before we're breaking the form and then when i go to start watching the movie i'm ready for that Mm -hmm. um, form breaking and i'm not wondering when the movie is going to be like a normal movie that i expect it to be
2: it's kind of like the first time you ever see like a single take film if you didn't know that it was a single take film, you'd be like, wait, are they going to cut anytime soon? Yeah. Have they cut before? Did I miss it?
3: Although well, that, that was pretty exciting when I saw, I, when I saw Birdman, I had no idea that was going to happen. Oh, that's and, I was fun, like, right? and so I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. This is what we're in for. Oh, this is, yeah, I'm in for this. That's funny. That's it. A,
2: a,
1: yeah. what, a, what a surprise. What a it's trip very exciting. That. Yeah. I, I want to say one last thing about titles because, you know, I'm crazy about titles. The other thing you got to be watch out for is like, you know, temp love. Like when you like love your color grade, love your temps more, mm-hmm. love your all your, those things because you've just gotten used to them. Like that can happen with titles too. Like if you have a title, and everyone's like, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know about the title, I don't know about the title, but you've been working on the project for so long mm-hmm. that in your mind, this title, like there can be no other title. And you go into production, you know, and people are like, this is kind of a weird title. You're like, yeah. It's just like a working mm-hmm. title. Mm-hmm. Then you finish the movie and you're like, let's just do use this title. Um, because everyone's used to it by now it's been on all the call sheets and just be aware of that. That happened to me. I made this movie called Hamel. The first time I saw the script, I was like, Hamel, that title tells me nothing. And then it played at the Newport Beach Film Festival. And like these two women came out of the theater. And one of them was like, I'm sorry, I thought it was about Dorothy Hamel. It's a sports movie called Hamel. (laughs) Um, And she was, you know, this famous ice skater. And so that's when I was like, ah, God, why did we not change? Every person that read the title was like, huh. And then we just ignored it because we were so used to it. Mm -hmm. And so just titles. If 10 people are like, hmm, it's a weird title. Listen to them. Okay, you're not smarter than everyone.
2: It does remind me of the the rule that my wife walked away with for after see you next Christmas, which is like it's never going to fix itself. If you're like, I should change the title or the scene doesn't work or whatever, like no amount of improv or costuming or whatever, it's always going to bother you. It's never going to get better. It's never going to get fixed unless you just friggin' fix it. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: If it's a problem in the script, it's going to be a problem all the way through. I mean, there are like some small things that I think people don't really understand, you know, because you have the vision. Sometimes there are things that people don't really understand until they Mm -hmm. see the storyboards or like the final, I, I had my, one of my friends, and he's outside of the film industry. So that's like a huge part of it, which, but he came up to me after all sorts and he was like, yeah, I read the script and I was like, this is, is this supposed to be funny. Like <laughs> it, you said it was a comedy. Like, I don't, I don't really get it. And then I saw you film it and I was just like, I don't know what he's doing. Like, why is he doing that? And what, you know, like oh, he's on this scene for like for so long or whatever. And then, you know, in the movie theater, like it was all cut together with the sound effects. And I was like, Oh, Oh, that's how that was yeah, supposed to be yeah, like, yeah. and I was like, oh yeah, see, like, I mean, that's why, that's why so many great directors they go pitching in their, their move, their big huge amazing blockbuster around, and nobody takes it because they they don't see the same vision,
1: they right? don't get it, yeah.
3: Oh, so there is something to that too.
1: I get so scared of making movies now, knowing that people are you know on their phones, on they're doing mm-hmm. other things, they're watching them on their computer, they're what you know pausing, talking to other people, like. Like, you can't have one detail that's said in one piece of dialogue that if you missed it, the whole movie doesn't work, you know? Um, I was actually
3: talking about this with someone that, you know, so on Facebook, one of my friends, who's an animator, uh, found, or actually a motion graphics VFX person, she posted about um, this, this quote from Phil Tippett, where he was like, people today don't, you know, like, directors today don't understand that, like, you know, artists get burned out and they, like, they frame... I'm not going to say that word, but frame screw, you know everything, mm-hmm. and like they're like, you know, we play this game of does this look real, you know? And if you stare at it long enough, you'll find something. No matter what it is, you'll find something that doesn't look real, and you'll keep trying to like make iterations and change it, and like keep working, you know. And we had to do hundred variations to make this like one stupid little VFX shot look real. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, um, you know, and, and I think that that's true that, that you can overwork something to -hmm. death. You can like, you know, care about one little detail more than anybody else will. And nobody's ever going to notice that. But I think also we're working in a different time now where, you know, people are taking screenshots and laughing about them on the internet, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and if Mm -hmm. they're, you know, before, if there was a mistake in a movie, you might never, nobody might ever see it or or get a picture Mm -hmm. of it because it was on film you know like people who didn't have vcrs this was like you know like even if you had a vcr maybe that's like that's not really good enough to see what it's like
2: if you see a mistake what do you do you rewind to confirm that oh i saw i i did see a mistake like but you if you couldn't do that because it was linear tv or a, a film then yeah
3: and, and who would you tell? You'd probably tell like three or four friends, like, take a look at this, but it wouldn't like spread across the nation. I do think we mm-hmm. are living in a different time where, where things are nitpicked to death.
1: Sure. But you yeah. Just, but oh, to me, that's, that's a sign of success. It's like, if they nitpick, yeah. like, Ooh, look at, I, I'm actually doing some VFX now on a movie and yeah. um, I'm doing this, uh, characters looking through Instagram and clicking on a bunch of things and I have to build all these Instagram screens. And so I do a lot of screen recording of my own phone, but of course I do them at different times. And I realized today, I'm like, oh, she's like searching through this guy's profile. But you know, the time it's like four ten, and now it's two fifteen, and now it's seven twenty five. Mm-hmm. Like, is anyone like part of me is like tempted to put it in because the director didn't notice? Um, mm. But I'm like, ooh, this would be a fun Easter egg if people notice. It means, I, you know, there's this saying in film. I feel like probably some USC mm-hmm. uh, producer came up with it. But like the if they notice that, then there's bigger problems in the movie type of Mm -hmm. saying. But to me, it's actually the reality is the opposite. Like if they start noticing that the time's off means they've really they're really watching this movie carefully. You know, I'm curious from your test screenings. So you said at least 100 people watch it. Were there any lessons that you learned from that that are kind of repeatable? Like something I learned from my first film, it was a sports film. And we had a lot of montages, you know, it was a, about this guy's life. He would go back home. He went to college, all these different things. He was growing as a human. We probably had like seven montages in the movie. And after the first screening, everyone's like, dude, you, you have to earn those montages. You can't just mm. cut to a montage, cut to a montage, cut to a montage. And I think in the final film, we have maybe three montages. It's, it's a thing that as a filmmaker, you want to show time passing and you've got all these amazing shots of something. You want to use them. But as an audience member, it, it gets a montage can get really boring really fast. So that was like one thing I learned from all of our test screenings. Was there anything that you learned from yours that's like, oh, I shouldn't do this again? Or like people don't care about my cool camera movement or pacing I, or music or, or anything.
3: I have a quick question about yours because I also want to learn from your, your trial, Mistakes. right? When you say earn, earn a mm-hmm. montage, does that mean like you have to set it up and like, Do work to get the montage to work, or does it mean like just you know you can only use a few of those?
1: I think it's a it's a combination. Like Hmm. if a montage, let's say let's say it is a sports, let's say it's like Karate Kid type thing, you know, and we want to show that he's no good at karate and now he is good at karate, right? Right. And so we're showing him really bad at three different things, then we're showing him like almost giving up at three different at those three things, and then we're showing him you know get humiliated but fight back for some reason, you know, and then we're seeing him improve a little bit. And like his trainer, who's been a jerk this whole time, has like, just, you know, raises his eyebrows. And then we see that he succeeds in all those things. And now he's like, actually pretty good at karate. That's, that's good. You can have that sequence one time in the movie, but now Mm -hmm. he's going, he's won some tournaments. And now there's this big challenge. He's got to fight this even better, you know, more difficult opponent. We went through that same montage again, telling the same exact story where he's not that good and he's getting better, I think it would be boring. So unless your montage is telling like a very different story, you know, um, the next time I I think it can get boring. And I think something that I did, especially on my first movie is we shot in all these like beautiful locations in upstate New York. And I just like wanted to show, you know, cars driving and like establish these towns and he's going to college. So let's get five different shots of students going to college. And now he's, Here by these waterfalls. Let's get three shots of him go walking up to the waterfall. And it's like, dude, we get it. You establish this place, you know. Like, we don't Mm. need five shots to establish everything. I I wonder,
2: orin if you could have if you cut all of these montages. I have a hunch that the reason you were able to cut them is because they didn't have a ton of story or plot, right?
1: Yeah, there were a lot of like establishing, and mm. there was one beat in my movie where this guy decides to finally like help help this um Mm -hmm. his girlfriend is this deaf activist and he's kind of been ignoring the things she cares about the whole time and then he realizes he's been a dick and he like wants to help her out and we shot him basically going and doing doing this Mm -hmm. activism work like we realized it it, actually this this sequence works better if he just like has a thought and then we cut to him bringing all these signed forms back Mm -hmm. you know and we don't need to see him talking, interacting with 20 different college students to get these forms signed, you know, with like this fun, like poppy, folksy sure. music, which we shot. I mean, we shot, you know, we signed, got released as we went to like 10 different locations around campus. Mm-hmm. We did all this stuff. We got. It was fun, you know, because he was like randomly asking real people to sign these things. We were filming like on these long lenses from far away, you know, kind of the end of the second act. By that point, people like they want to know what's important and it just wasn't important.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's it's telling that your first example of a good montage is a training montage because that has a ton of story that collapses time and has a ton of plot all in one. There's a reason that's a trope. That's a cliche. Yeah. And you
1: can set up things that come back later, you know, like the Mm -hmm. crane kick, obviously, and Mm -hmm. the karate kid specifically.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, It's like this kind of meaningless like training exercise. But at the end, you know, he has to use it it to win. It's got to pay off. And I,
2: I wonder right. if maybe there's some like like to your point of like traveling and settling, setting tone and all that stuff like a travel montage, you know, uh, tends to be a pet peeve of mine for sure. Like if a character going from like one town to the next.
1: Right. Do that. Just do the shots, Edgar Wright thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're there. Yeah. Um, or even
2: even the crappy, you know, drone shot, drone shot. That's fine, too.
3: I think everything in a movie, if you're doing it right, has to be somehow novel. You know, mm-hmm. like you can't do the exact same training montage as Karate Kid, sure. right? It's like, even if it's like really close, it's not gonna fly. I always think of that with, um, with Die Hard in the end where he has like, uh, spoiler alert, but he has the, like the gun taped to the back of his head.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm just Hi.
3: like, nobody can ever use that gag in an action movie again. Right. Even it's though done. they have,
1: but yeah.
3: yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, but when they
1: have, it's bad it, right. because yeah. of that.
3: I mean, it's, it's done. It's taken. Right. And with every, yeah, they did movie that It comes out. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So the, you know, with every movie that, that, um, comes out, I feel like there's more and more things that are taken off the plate, you know, mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. use in your film. So with the travel montage, I think is you're doing something novel and interesting like, um, the director you mentioned right where it's like chuck, chuck,
1: chuck, you yeah, know right. not a
3: lot of people mm-hmm. did that with you know like before i'd did. but if you're like doing it like i'd like, right now no you can't do like that's not yeah, really yeah, really yeah. Help. Like, trust oh, me oof.
1: i've tried <laughs> many times <laughs> it, yeah. so yeah.
3: is there something that new that you can bring um to this or do you? Well, how do you about do you this i was thinking, thinking
1: like a shot of a map kind of like an old-timey <laughs> parchment and like little dashed lines mm-hmm. um Anyway, I'll tell you one other thing. I actually learned this on my first short film, but I had to relearn it again on my feature film, which is, you know, we're, we're always like pumped with this idea that like, we just need a lot of conflict, you know, Mm -hmm. conflict makes it, make it hard for your main character, make it, you know, like they have to fight, like the harder it is, the better the story. But like what people don't remind us is that we need to like, our our characters should be happy sometimes, you know? Mm Like, it's nice to see a character smile or win or li- have a little success. And Someone should tell it to Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah. But there's something charming about seeing someone smile. And that's something that in my feature, it was a lot of like hardships that my main mm-hmm. character faced. And I think at first it's like, ah, he just keeps failing. It's like hard for me to keep rooting for him. And part of the recut was like pulling away, just literally lifting out some of like the huge big moments of failure that hmm. again, seeing a character fail over and over in similar ways starts getting boring. Um, so did you learn anything?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So on the first film, I was trying to start the movie in a novel way for me, at least, which was like, mm-hmm. it was narrated by the character and the character is like, this is me. I have this girlfriend. She's cheating on me. This is what's happening. This is how much money I have in my game account. He was just like a list of all the things about him. And with the test screenings, that just wasn't working, and I, it took me a while to figure it out. But I just took, ended up having to take like one scene with him and his relationship first, and putting that at the beginning of the movie to show that it wasn't working, and then he kind of like rattles off about himself and why it's not working. But I found that what I think was the reason that nobody that wasn't jiving with anybody was that people don't want to just be told everything at the beginning of a movie. They want to mm-hmm. kind of like slowly, they want to like guess, right. They want to like look and see the character. They want to like find out how they feel about the character first mm-hmm. before you, you say anything them a little about bit. that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that I was like it. a big lesson I was like, Oh, I'm going to, nobody's done this before. And it like, turns out there's a really good reason that's not in a film. <laughs> that way. You know, it's like, oh, it just doesn't work. People want to investigate more. They want to like be in this world and find things. They don't want, you know, you just to like stuff it in, in your face. Two big things on all sorts, I think, in the testing phase. One was uh, don't finish your scenes too much
1: like every scene ended with someone walking out the door closing it (laughs) everyone says goodbye on the telephone and then they hang up
3: (laughs) i mean that's part of it right it's just like don't make it feel like the end of a scene at the end of every like scene you know like like, a five
1: minute scene in all sorts where someone's like paying the bill like waiting for their credit (laughs) card to come back
3: like every one of them has to have momentum by like kind of not finishing so if somebody asks a question like well what should we do and then they say, "Let's go to the bank." And then the next <laughs> scene's the bank. Yeah, yeah. Don't have them say like, "Let's go to like Let's go to the bank." Just say, "What should we do?" And then cut to the, the bank.
1: bank. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and might I though. suggest the cash register ching sound effect at that moment? <laughs> yeah, pre-lap. That <laughs> <laughs> That is a, a good That's tip. My, my yeah. mom, who I'm sure is not listening to this, sorry, mom, if you are, she shoots this like cooking show, this Jewish cooking show. That's awesome. Jewish uh, people making. Huh things and she shoots it on her iPhone and she edits it, but she does one shot, like one wide shot and she'll do like slow zooms in and, you know, all these crossfades Mm -hmm. and things. And she was actually asked to shoot someone else's cooking show. And she's like, Oh, I watch the stuff they shoot. And it's not good. They're just like cutting. They're not using any crossfades. They're not using any sort of transitions. And Mm. I was like, well, mom, (laughs) that's kind of the style now, you know, like ever since Mm. Buzzfeed and stuff, like no one really does these crossfades and she's like BuzzFeed what's that do I need to watch BuzzFeed I'm like no it, just like crossfades like their only time you would ever use them in a movie or a tv show now is at the end of like an act the end of a scene and you want to just take your time and say this ended and now and usually you'll kind of crossfade into an establishing shot unless you're really like crossfading from someone saying like I will never on my grave do this thing and then you slowly fade to them doing that thing." usually you would probably do a straight cut anyway to that depending on the tone of the film yeah yeah yeah. who likes them no one
3: unless they're specifically planned for a specific thing that makes a lot of sense and looks good visually but otherwise it's usually like a lot of trash right in the middle
1: just building on what you're saying rick which is you can end the scene like when like three times in the movie you know and it's a time when you want to give the audience like a Mm -hmm. pause maybe it's the end of an act maybe it's a end of a decision maybe it's ben affleck staring in the mirror figuring out that he's got to do something about these guys to get him out of iran wherever they were it is an argo spoiler go on rick second thing
3: the other thing too is like you know don't wait for applause after the joke that's 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 part of the first thing sorry Mm -hmm. i'm not don't wait for applause don't wait like as soon as you the joke cut you know to something and then you
1: play the laugh track
3: (laughs) yeah exactly so the, the second thing was um, just don't be afraid of race. Sorry. Don't be afraid of reshoots uh, because mm. you're going to, I think, I don't know why I had this idea as a filmmaker earlier, but I always felt like it was like admission of failure where it was like, Oh, I admitted I made a mistake and didn't film everything that I needed to film at the first time around. That's what a reshoot is, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was always kind of against them. I don't know why it doesn't make any sense, but with this film, I was like, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can to, like, get this movie to the place it needs to be. And one of the things that wasn't working in uh, the first cut was the relationship, the romantic relationship between the two leads. And, they, you know, people were just saying, like, yeah, it just uh, doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. they're in love with each other. So we shot, like I wrote, and we shot three extra scenes just with the two of them. And nobody ever questioned that again you know, Mm -hmm. like, and it really worked, and it really worked. And we shot, we took a whole day and we filmed a ton of little inserts that just helped explain little things that people were getting Mm -hmm. hooked up on. They just didn't understand that this was the same thing as that thing, or this Mm -hmm. person was also the the person that's mentioned this time. And, you know, just getting these tight little insert shots here and there, just like the more connective tissue between everything else so that the things that people were supposed to understand, they really did understand.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I seconded on the inserts in particular, um, and with CNX Christmas, we did a lot of inserts. Inserts are pretty easy to double. Yeah, is the other thing, right? Like, yeah. I am the hands of the romantic lead for an insert shot in the movie. You can't tell I'm wearing a different sweater. We don't look at all alike. Yeah, I just had the right props, and like, we found a sweater that was sort of similar and lit it
1: right. And that was that. Before we end the interview, can you tell us a little bit about like the distribution of, of all sorts?
3: So it's coming out October 5th. And it's coming out on, you know, Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, all of the all the big streaming platforms. You know, it doesn't have any big stars. So we've been reaching out. We reached out to a ton of distributors. Uh, we some were interested, but, you know, nobody was interested in theatrical. And so mm-hmm. that was something we really wanted to pursue. I found with the first film that I did since we made it in the Yakima Valley, I was able to just call up a few movie theaters in the area and get them to play the film just by, you know, the fact that it's you know, in the local area and we were able to ask them for a 50-50 split and we were able to actually make a little money from that, which was, you know, helpful because we had, you know, absolutely no marketing money or anything like that. And so it's really a DIY film. So we've been spreading it out as much as we possibly can. We found a list of every single movie theater across the United States and we've been calling places up and emailing them and asking them to play the movie. And And these are just
1: independent movie theaters? Like you're not calling up AMCs and...
3: We tried calling up AMC. They had like a list and they had like a minimum of how much marketing money -hmm. money you need to put into your film. And Mm -hmm. so that didn't work out. They were really interested only in rentals. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't part of our plan to, to four wall anything. So mostly, yeah, we've just been getting contact with independent movie theaters around the country and we've had some success you know our my film right now is playing in Juneau Alaska tomorrow and mm-hmm. in New Orleans on Saturday and then we're doing like a week run in Bremerton Washington in a couple of weeks so mm. that's something that we've been able to do and uh, another thing that was helpful was that we were in the Seattle International Film Festival so that organization owns a few movie theaters in Washington and Seattle. And so they were able to program us for, you know, a week, um, which was really exciting. And we had a lot of fun. We flew there for the, for the screening and whatnot. And I realized how important that is for marketing um, because, you know, when you're playing a movie theater, I could see why that's a loss leader for a lot of films, because when you're playing a movie theater, it's on the marquee. It's mm-hmm. in the newspaper a lot of times because they advertise in the newspaper. It's on their website. And if you go into the, you know, the movie theater, you see the poster there. So even if people aren't seeing the movie, it's, it is pretty big. So we've been trying to like make this a win-win for the movie theater. So we've been putting a lot of like, you know, time and effort into getting different press in different areas. But I think where we've been most successful is focusing on one area. So our movie was made in Washington state and We really wanted to try to like saturate that area because Mm -hmm. we only have so many ad dollars. We can't market to try to like market in the entire United States. We'd be like um, dropping a penny in the ocean, trying to find it again. And
2: and when you say we we're talking about really like you and your producer basically are kind of like a two person band at this point.
3: Yeah. I have, I have an employee at a, at Vibrant Penguin, who also helps like emailing PR mm-hmm. and all of these things, which is something I've just kind of like learned over the years is just like find an email on the internet, email them about your movie, and sometimes they answer and sometimes they want to interview you, and it's very exciting.
2: So when you say PR, like you mean like you're talking like local news stations and that sort of thing or like who who's your who's your employee emailing?
3: Mostly like newspapers, radio Mm -hmm. stations, um, sometimes local like film professors, if there's like a college in the area, because we found that's a great way to reach people. And it also feels kind of cool giving back and talking Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. talking with film students is so much fun. You get like so much energy from it. You know, we've been trying to find blogs, you know film articles, you know, other things and, um, you know, reviewers, right? So Mm -hmm. just kind of scraping rotten tomatoes, basically, and finding all the information for all the different reviewers that are a rotten tomato reviewer and finding their Twitter address, finding their email, talking to them,
0: Mm -hmm. um,
3: you know, trying to get the word out about the film as much as possible.
2: So the strategy of like localizing, I think is really interesting. So how many theaters, in the greater Washington area were you kind of originally looking at how many did you actually play walk, walk us through kind of like maybe a success story and maybe something that you wouldn't do again.
3: I think I probably wouldn't try to email movie theaters across the United States again Uh with this film of this size, Mm -hmm. because we've tried a few and like, you know, even done some Facebook marketing in those markets and It's just too much of an uphill climb, trying to get people to go to the movie theater to see this film they never heard of in a place that's never heard of you. Do you think COVID
1: has changed that? Like it would have been easier pre-pandemic?
3: I think it would have definitely been easier because like a lot of the movie theaters that we've been talking to, they're like, oh, nobody, you know, like 10 people came to see this movie in Delaware. And then they're like, oh, but it was really warm this weekend. Nobody's came to see like any of them. It wasn't like huge. So we like, for instance, and in, we played in Tacoma, Washington, and I was actually there for a screening. And I think we got, you know, 26 people. Mm-hmm. And but that was more than Top Gun was getting. That was more than...
2: You're up against big movies and yeah. you have the biggest crowd, but it's right. still... It's still... is isn't, isn't a huge crowd. Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. 26 people is a lot of people when you see them in a movie theater... You're like, dang. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. But we had one yeah. of the greatest you know, Q&As that we've had because those people all stuck around and, and we actually like, they had like, a lounge area, so we all like, sat there with coffee. It was just really fun. And, yeah, that sounds um, awesome. And sometimes those things like, lead to further things. So one of the first trial runs that we did was in Spokane, which is like, kind of on the eastern side of the, of the state, but it's still far from, from where we filmed. And we just happened to call up like a movie theater and said, hey, can we play like one night in next month? And the guy said, sure. Hey, do you want to play all weekend? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, actually, do you want me to just keep it for the next week? And we're like, yeah, (laughs) sure. You know, and and that felt very good. And it just felt like they were getting something out of it because it was something interesting. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get a lot of press in that area. So it got the movie theater mentioned in Spokane in like the big newspaper there.
1: And do you give them like a poster and stuff to put up in the lobby?
3: Yeah, we, you know, we mail them posters. We send them some like small Instagram videos to like spread through their social media if they want to.
2: Yeah. And I think also newer theaters are just doing LED posters. So you're just, you just email them a JPEG.
3: I haven't seen that in any of the movie theaters we played so far, but that might be like, you know, like the bigger chains.
2: That might yeah. Be. Well, I know like the Lemley theaters, the newer. Uh, the newer theaters have, um, have that. And I actually think, Oren I think they do do animated, they do support animated gifts. That's
3: fun. You know, I'm hoping by kind of blanketing the Washington State area and like really focusing there that it can lead to something. But we won't know until we figure out our, you know, until our streaming launch comes and we see if people really react to it or not.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a a quick pitch on why people should watch the movie?
3: It's just so much fun. I I think it is really fun. You know, people kind of like go into it and, you know, with their serious, like, oh, I'm just going to a movie face. And then they come out and I can see there's like been a difference in the way that they're thinking about their own life, the way they're thinking about something magical. It's definitely not everything, everywhere all at once, but it fits that kind of vibe. It's, it's different, you know, like I, I do think it's a different kind of movie. It's probably the best uh, filing competition movie that come out this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's, you know, something different.
1: Well, awesome. If people want to find out more about the movie, where should they go?
3: Allsortsmovie.com.
2: Before we happen to unpaid endorsements, I do want to say to everyone at home, Allsortsmovie.com is a legit good website. Mm, I'll be the judge <laughs> of that. Hold on. Take a look. We're going to hear, watch it in real time.
1: Allsortsmovie.com. Ooh, very cool yeah
2: it's got great
1: key art it's got like awesome laurels it animates very cleanly the mailing list pops up you know what's awesome about it i've been on it for at least 30 seconds now and it still hasn't asked me if i need if i want to accept cookies accept <laughs> cookies yeah
2: <laughs> um so before we get into unpaid endorsements rick uh who made your website buddy did you
3: laura or my producer did so we kind of worked on it a little bit together, but she was the one that really put everything together. Kira was done by an animator that I work with. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's animated for all the big shows. So it's pretty exciting that he was, he was like, yeah, I want to do a movie poster that would be fun. Randolph, he's, he's incredible.
1: Is there a trailer?
3: We're currently trying to figure out how to launch our trailer. Cause we want to launch it like kind of right before the movie comes out and we're hoping to get maybe some sort of good placement for that. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, we haven't really figured out what we're, where we're going or who we're going to try to pitch that to.
2: Well, keep us posted Rick. Um, cause I guess trailer placement is, you know, a thing for sure. Um,
3: I was trying to think what uh, Randolph has worked on. And uh, he's worked on Axe Cobb, which I think is pretty awesome.
2: Oh, that, that is awesome. That's really awesome. Well, Rick, uh, do you have a few more moments to hang are out you? and endorse with us? Yes. Unpaid endorsements.
1: So my unpaid endorsement, or you're going to roll your eyes at me. No, I already rolled them. Just preemptively. <sighs> I can tell that I'm not going to like it just no, from the timber no, no, no. of your voice. other uh, way around, you're going to be like, dude...
2: I endorsed this th- two years ago. What have you been waiting for? So I went out yeah. to the photo supply store and bought myself a pair of Aperture MC lights, which I know are old news. They've been around for a long while. They're the little... Little bricks. They're about the size of a deck of cards. A little bit bigger. They're about 90 bucks. They have a magnet on the back. You can dial in the colors. They have all sorts of fun presets. It can be like a paparazzi or fireworks or fire. Trick your
1: partner into thinking you're under arrest. Mm -hmm. Do it when they're Uh, high. Yeah, it's so fun. But they're just simple
2: little lights. They're nice and bright. They have like a little rubber like diffusion on them. And the the magnet is really awesome. You can just kind of throw it throw them anywhere. And boy, they're so neat and fun. And like I said, they're all they're ninety dollars. Hmm. And I don't know why it took me years to just grab a few. It they're a great little tool to like if you're ever shooting something, if you ever need to, for instance, shoot an insert shot, having a few of those lights around, you're probably pretty close to good to go. It's really truly incredible how cheap film gear is now. If you'd shown any of us an Aperture MC light in college and been like, this was $100. I can pick it up with my bare hands. It changes colors. I use my phone to control it. And like the battery lasts for forever. It would blow your fucking mind. They're great to have laying around. So that's my endorsement. Okay, Rick, what do you get?
3: I was going to do a shout out to Liz Manichel. We actually hired her to be a consultant for our distribution. And it was, it was one of the best money that we ever spent. Because I think like I've distributed a movie before, but that was like eight years ago. And everything changes in about 30 days.
0: Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. The whole
3: game just changes in about mm. the space of a couple months nowadays. And having someone that's like on your side that um, was not taking a percentage was like a huge thing for us. And I think mm-hmm. that so many like sales agents and people in the distribution world just seem so shady and like don't really seem like they're on your side or seem like they're puffing smoke or something. And so having her, I guess blowing smoke is the right term. But having her on our side just felt like we knew more of she was able to like learn us up real quick. And mm-hmm. I I really appreciated that.
2: Yeah. You're also just kind of paying for a person to who's current. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you, like you're saying, it's going so fast. It's kind of a full-time job. It's Liz's full-time job yeah. to stay up to date on who's doing what, what players are looking for what, what are the going rates, what's the atmosphere like. And like, it's pretty hard to be an expert at building websites and distributing your film and all of the things. Basically, you kind of have to narrow it down and pick a, at least a few things if you're going to be a full-time filmmaker and also maybe have a side hustle. And so the likelihood that you have a passion for knowing the ins and outs of the
1: distribution world, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, pretty low. So yeah, pretty cool. Liz Manichel. Kaplan, what you got, buddy? Okay. I got this video. It's a commercial for a Lenovo Yoga Slim laptop called The Power to Just Be You. So if you look up on YouTube, Yoga Slim, The Power to Just Be You. It's a commercial for this uh, new laptop from Lenovo that. This guy, actually a listener of ours, Matt Eulery. I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. I had lunch with him today and he showed me this commercial. And does anything seem strange about this commercial to you guys? Would you believe me if I told you? All on an iPhone? No, crazier than that. This entire Mm. commercial, there's no cameras used. (laughs) Wait, what? It's 100% CG. Wait, what? 100% CG? 100% CG. These people are metahumans. Oh uh, damn fully it's a great looking commercial <laughs> for uh, Lenovo lap, laptops looks totally totally real i'm not sure i believe you it looks that real like cuz there is animation in it as well yeah there's like obviously, avatars and stuff yeah but then there's the people and they are they're metahumans they're they're not real we You looked at a frame and he was like, yes, this is a fake thing. This is the whole thing. Yeah. He thinks you can tell from the hands, some of the movements aren't great. And that some of the clothes like don't wrinkle and things. I was like shocked and I couldn't believe it. God, I I think I'm going to barf.
2: I don't know. This is like the end of the world. Part of what's baffling about it is that this is a totally shootable commercial. You know what I mean?
3: Uh, I'm definitely stunned by the fact that it's fake, but I do definitely believe it. We're, that's where we're living now.
1: The hands are a I little I guess weird. probably the most, yeah. the, but the faces are incredible. Like the wrinkles so. in her cheeks, the woman's cheeks and like I her think Yeah,
2: Yeah, they, hold on. There's some weird occlusion. There's a, the guy at, at, boy.
3: What it looks like is that they're just using uh, some really powerful makeup uh, enhancement filter. Yeah. Like, like they're, yeah. they just seem too clean.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's like someone took a selfie and then like used like the face tune or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, it's totally bonkers. Um I already I sent you the article, Matt, that someone won a um an art competition with a mid journey submission. Um
3: I've been trying mid journey this week and it's completely addictive.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean yeah. So the D the person I was talking to is a DP slash director that showed me this commercial and he's really worried. He's like, dude, this is going to be like, we're not going to have jobs. I just think it's too hard to get such a clean look. I think, you know, I have a team of really talented artists. Um, and he mm-hmm. said that they're, that are pretty big team working on this <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of outsourcing to other countries and things. But yeah, anyhow, if you don't know what metahumans are, they're these like photorealistic 3d human models that you can animate and they are free. You can take them into any 3D program and render them like clearly this wasn't rendered in Unreal. It looks too real. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's dizzying.
3: The last show that we did for Twitch was a show with CodeMiko. Are you familiar with CodeMiko? She's a Mm -hmm. virtual virtual streamer so she wears like a full body suit and just streams live on the internet as like a avatar, like a 3D avatar.
1: Yeah, wasn't she like the first... Avatar to be signed by like CAA or something like that.
3: Probably, probably one of the first. Yeah, she quit her job. I think she quit her job at uh, Nickelodeon as an animator and was like, "I'm just during the pandemic was like, I'm just gonna go ahead and do this, go full in." And now she's huge.
1: It's a it's a crazy world.
3: She was a lot of she was a lot of fun to work with, and it's kind of neat where you know, like someone can just like she could just be on screen and like lift a car, you know, as mm-hmm. part of like her set, you know, like as part and she of she doesn't live. Yeah, she does it all live. It's um streaming. So she has like one camera that's like right in front of her face. That's like a cell phone. I think it's like just an iPhone that's filming her face. So she has one thing for face capture and then her bodysuit for everything else.
1: Crazy. Nuts. So, so nuts. Okay, well, on that note, let's retire
3: ourselves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Time to get yeah. back in the shoebox tonight. And- yeah. yeah yeah like in,
2: so.
1: yeah. Recharged. <laughs> um, well rick thanks for thanks for coming on um you guys can check out more about rick at vibrantpenguin.com com. are you on social media
3: all sorts movie is the best handle because you can just okay. find that everywhere instagram facebook twitter tiktok etc
2: well, if you have questions for Rick and you don't want to reach out to him directly, you can always hit us up at Just Shoot a Pod across all social media or at Just Shoot it Pod at gmail.com if you have a longer form question. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media.
1: And I'm at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. I'm at O Kaplan on Instagram. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Check him out. He's at Noah Bayshore on TikTok. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the Artist Jazar. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone.